Welcome to the King's Church Amersham podcast. For more information and resources, go to www.kca.church. Good morning here in the room. Good morning online. Great to be with you. I hope you've been enjoying these weeks we've spent in the book of Acts, the first eight chapters. I hope Acts has encouraged you. Because we have the same Jesus, the same Holy Spirit, the same gospel, the same power of God available and at work among us here in Amersham today as we read in the book of Acts. And many of us would say, we want to be more like the church in Acts. Is that right? Ever thought that? Well, today we're going to take a look at persecution. That's right, persecution. Because opposition persecution are an inescapable part of the package that we see in these early chapters of Acts. The power of God at work in wonderful ways and also right alongside that persecution. And it wasn't just some blip, some unfortunate one-off that they had to get through and then it was okay. No, no. Persecution remained a regular, familiar part of the life of the early church in the years and the centuries that followed. What we see here in Acts isn't the exception. This is the rule So if we want to be like the early church, we better have a look then, haven't we? So let's read together from Acts chapter 5. This is verses 27 to 42. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. And then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thudas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. His followers were dispersed and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, Peter and John, if you know your acts, they've already been hauled in before the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, once before in chapter 4. They were told not to speak about Jesus anymore. They replied they weren't going to obey them. They were going to obey God. They couldn't help talking about Jesus. 
And that time they let them go with just a lot of threats. But now, here they are back again. They've been arrested. They were put in prison. An angel opened the doors overnight and got them out. And the next day, there they are, back teaching the full message of this new life in the temple. So they get brought in again to be questioned by the high priest. We told you not to teach in this name, he says. He can't even bring himself to say the name of Jesus. And Peter replies in almost the same words as last time, we must obey God rather than men. And then they want to kill them. But this Pharisee Gamaliel intervenes and in the end they have them flogged and let them go. But of course this is just the start. Pretty much the next thing that we read is that Stephen is arrested and stoned to death in chapter 6 and 7 as Saul looks on approvingly. And then a great persecution breaks out against the church in Jerusalem in chapter 8. Saul carries out a house-to-house search for Christians, dragging them off to prison. And the church that was doing so well is scattered, the text says, throughout Judea and Samaria. And here it's the Jews. Later it's the Romans. And it's continued throughout church history, different parts of the world, different times, persecution, suffering, martyrdom. Now in Britain, it's true that in these Dying days of Christendom, if I can call them that. When our society is rushing to shed the dead skin of its Christian worldview and Christian values, nevertheless, we see almost nothing yet that could legitimately be called persecution. Now, true, on a personal level, we might experience mockery or perhaps some measure of social exclusion. Not everybody will like us. And it's true, as a recent article in Christianity Today noted, there have been some high-profile cases in the news headlines. Nurses being disciplined for praying with patients. Registrars sacked for refusing to marry gay couples. Employees forced to cover up their cross necklaces. In a pluralistic society, the article says, it seems inevitable that the minority who hold to orthodox Christian teaching will find public life less hospitable. But this isn't persecution. There may be areas of life where values clash, but nobody in Britain is deprived of education or loses their job or is driven from their home or is imprisoned or executed with the blessing or even the blind eye of the state simply because they're a Christian. Now true, there have been instances in the media recently where, rightly or wrongly, street preachers have been moved on by the police. But as Gavin Calver told us a few weeks ago, right now there is more freedom to preach the gospel in the UK than almost anywhere else on earth. But that may change. As the director of ministry of the C.S. Lewis Institute writes, that era, he says an era of freedom from culture-wide persecution, that era has almost disappeared. A new era is upon us. Exactly what it will be like is not yet clear but it seems unlikely that it will be favorable to those who follow Jesus. So we should consider the scriptures on the subject of persecution. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, you know what kind of things happened to me, the persecutions I endured. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everyone. So that includes you and me then. Remember the words I spoke to you, Jesus says in John 15. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, which they did, they will persecute you also. Why? 
Why should we expect for us as Christians that the norm is that we will face persecution in one way or another, at one time or another? Why should that be so? Let me briefly give you four reasons. Firstly, because the cross is an offense to the intellect with its message that human wisdom counts for nothing. Mankind cannot sort things out for itself. Science is not the answer to our ultimate needs. Without God, society and humanity are doomed. The cross is foolishness, Paul writes, to those who are perishing. To man's wisdom and cleverness and pride, our preaching is foolishness, not wisdom. We preach Christ crucified, he says, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. You see, we will always be idiots to the world unless the Spirit of God opens their eyes to the truth. But foolishness perhaps isn't as threatening as the second reason. The second reason we might face persecution is because the cross calls out sin. The cross diagnoses human guilt and moral failure and makes it personal. The cross brings each of us the message that we are not okay as we are. We are all sinners in need of God's forgiveness, without which we will be judged. And that message will win us more enemies than friends. Light has come into the world, Jesus says in John 3. But men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. You see, if we as Christians are the light of the world, as Jesus said, then many people would prefer to smash the light and to shut us up rather than let that light shine on them and have their sin laid bare and their guilt exposed. Thirdly, we belong to a different kingdom. Jesus said again in John 15, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. We whose home is in heaven. You see, we live in enemy-occupied territory. We know that we are children of God, John writes, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So no surprise then that in this world we will have much trouble, as Jesus told us. Persecution, John Stott writes, is simply the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. And if it's true, as I read recently, that a normal Christian by New Testament standards is basically a fanatic and a bigot in today's world, then we should not expect or even want to be able to blend in. Now in Acts 5, the clash was with the Jewish establishment, the religious authorities, with their vested interests threatened by this new religion. They're filled with jealousy, it says, verse 17. Later on, the conflict with the Roman authorities and the state imposes requirements that believers cannot comply with, like worshipping Caesar as God. And it's so on and it's so on through the ages. But as Christians, our primary loyalty can never be to any authority or any state but to God. So there will be times, wherever we are, when we cannot conform and one thing we can never promise to do, any more than they could promise it in Acts 5, is to be silent about Jesus. We can be careful, we can be wise, but never silent. So whenever and however these two kingdoms clash, as surely they will, we each face the same choice that the apostles had. Will we betray our calling? Will we cave in under pressure? Will we obey men? Or will we remain faithful and obey God and take whatever comes our way as a result? 
And the final reason we should expect opposition, even persecution, is simply because we're in a battle. We're at war. And if we are following Jesus, if we are serving him, and especially if we are taking ground, then we can expect our enemy to throw whatever he can against us. In Acts 26, Paul recounts to King Agrippa his encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road. I am sending you, Jesus said to Paul, to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That's what we're about too. In Reinhard Bonker's famous phrase, plundering hell, populating heaven. So when we are being effective, our enemy will do anything he can within his limited power to try to stop us. And he fights nasty because he is nasty and because he's desperate. And while I think we often give him far too much credit, I think we greatly exaggerate his power to harm us. Nevertheless, there are no doubt times when the ultimate reality behind at least some persecution is simply that our enemy is lashing out because we're hurting him. I think we see something of that here in our text, verse 41. After they're flogged, it says, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they've been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Now, I'm not entirely sure what that word means, that they've been counted worthy of suffering. But I think part of it may be that they knew they were being effective with the gospel. So effective that their enemies, whether it's the Jews or the spiritual powers of darkness, their enemies could not ignore them, but were desperate to stop them. I think that's part of why they wore their suffering as a badge of pride and rejoiced. I have a friend who's a church leader who was doing a great job leading, encouraging his church, focusing them outwards to reach out with the gospel. And then one evening, one of his family was badly hurt in a, an unprovoked, violent attack. It was very distressing. Now, you have to be very careful before you ascribe spiritual cause and effect to these things. And our job is always to keep our eyes on the Lord, not on what the enemy may or may not be up to. But this friend said to me, if this has happened as kickback because the enemy's worried, then we're just going to keep on going. We're going to carry right on. And I think that's something of the same spirit the apostles had when they're flogged here in Acts 5. God is with us. We're getting somewhere with the gospel. The enemy is badly rattled, so we're going to keep right on. We're going to do it more. And verse 42, day after day in the temple courts from house to house, they never stop teaching, proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. So how should we respond to the prospect of persecution? I'm not saying it's right on our doorstep. I'm not saying we're bound to face it anytime soon. Who knows? But if it is part and parcel of the normal Christian life, then we certainly ought at least to be prepared. So let me just share a few thoughts. How should we respond to this prospect? Firstly, don't be surprised. That's what Peter writes in 1 Peter 4. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal. That's almost certainly persecution. The fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This isn't strange, you see. This is the normal Christian life. We should expect this. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. You see, we participate in the sufferings of Christ. That's our call as Christians. I want to know Christ, Paul writes, and the power of his resurrection and to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, there is no other Christian life than the one that says, take up your cross. That's the thing Jesus died on. It's painful. 
Take up your cross and follow him. It's the man who loses his life, Jesus said, that will find it. This is how we know we are in him, John writes in 1 John 2. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walked. And that walk included persecution and suffering and death. See, there's no budget option. There's no Christianity light that omits these things. There are times, Peter writes, when we suffer according to God's will. And again, the context is persecution. As the Lord said to Ananias about Paul in Acts 9, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And sometimes the Lord may say to us, my son, my daughter, I know this path is hard, but I want you to walk it for me and I'll walk it with you. Commit yourself to your faithful creator in such times, Peter writes, for he is faithful. That's the second point. How should we respond? We should remember God is faithful. God helps. God strengthens in the time of trial. Here in Acts 5, Peter and the others are flogged. It may be the same Jewish punishment of 40 minus 1 lashes that Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians. He received it five times. But the Sanhedrin were furious and wanted to put them to death, verse 33, until Gamaliel spoke up with what sounds very like godly wisdom. The flogging was dreadful, no doubt, but God spared them from worse. You know about my persecutions, my sufferings, what kind of things happened to me, Paul writes to Timothy. The persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. He had the suffering for sure, but he also had the Lord's rescue. To King Agrippa, Paul says, the Jews seized me and tried to kill me, but I have had God's help to this very day, and so I stand here and I testify. Now, God's help may not be rescue. It may be to endure. They will put some of you to death, Jesus says to the disciples in Luke 21, and he was right. They did. There will not always be an angel to open the prison doors as there was in Acts 5. But even so, God will be faithful. Stephen, in Acts 7, he's stoned to death. But God gives him the strength for the ordeal. Verse 55, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he says, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He had a vision of God's glory. And his last words were, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He died in peace. Jesus was with him. Just as he said, I am with you always. I will never leave you or forsake you. The help Stephen received was sufficient for the suffering he endured. Because nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. I get material from an organization called ELAM that works with the persecuted church in Iran. Some of the testimonies are just wonderful. The reality of God at work, his presence in the face of extreme suffering. This is something I read from their prayer diary. An angry knock on your door, strangers ransacking your house, an armed escort to a car, a blindfold, a prison cell, hours of interrogation, psychological, sometimes physical torture, back to solitary confinement. Eventually a move to a crowded general cell with thieves and murderers and addicts. What's your crime, they ask. I'm a Christian. This has been the experience of hundreds of Christians in countless different cities, towns and villages across Iran. 
The aim of the arrest is to weaken the church. The opposite has happened. While persecution is deeply painful and wounds often take a long time to heal, many Christians released from prison testify the Holy Spirit strengthened them and gave supernatural wisdom throughout their ordeal. Even in prison, many have shared the gospel and led others to Christ. There is real pain, but there is also the presence of God and the strength that he gives when we most need it. And in Iran, the fastest growing church in the world, there are now between 800,000 and a million Christians. The suffering is not for nothing. In Acts 6, the outbreak of persecution was the launch pad for the gospel to spread far and wide. The link between persecution and the growth of the church has been seen again and again. The more you mow us down, the more we multiply, wrote Tertullian about 200 AD. The blood of Christians is the seed. From that seed, the church of Christ grows. It's not persecution that the church should fear, but rather comfort. That's what weakens us. Thirdly, how should we respond? Don't worry about it. Don't focus on persecution before it happens. Because you see, as with everything, you're given the help. God gives you the strength when you need it, not before. In Mark 13, Jesus tells the disciples, whenever you're arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it's not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Same in Luke 21. Make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I'll give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. That's what we just read in Iran. Don't worry beforehand because you'll be given help at that time. Help that you couldn't imagine in advance, even if you tried to. Because as always, the thing to do beforehand is simply this. Trust. Commit yourselves to God. Don't focus on the possibility of persecution and what it could look like and when it could come, which will only fill you with fear, but focus on God. Our prayer should not be, Lord, deliver me from persecution. Or even, Lord, strengthen me through persecution if it comes. Our prayer should simply be, Lord, I commit my way to you. And I just ask you would help me to be faithful to you in every situation of my life, one day at a time. It's not about persecution. It's about being faithful to Jesus. He is bigger than any trial. He alone should be our focus today. As Jesus said, do not worry about tomorrow. Finally, this is the big one. We need to fix our eyes on the reward that is to come. Those are the words of Jesus. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Blessed, you see, they're the fortunate ones. They're the happy ones. They're not the unlucky ones. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Leap for joy, he says in Luke 6, because great is your reward in heaven. And you see, ultimately, this is the only thing that is enough that will make it worthwhile staying faithful. This is what Jesus says we should focus on. There is a reward coming that if you could only see it, would make you say, thank you, Lord, for the incredible privilege of sharing in your sufferings. Because Jesus knows, you see. 
He's the one who for the joy set before him, same word, endured the cross and scoffed at the shame of it for the joy. He knows what the Father has planned for those who love him, which no eye has seen and no ear has heard and which the mind of man cannot imagine. I consider, says Paul, Romans 8, who knew a thing or two about suffering, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. 2 Corinthians 4, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is eternal. And that's what we have to do too. Because if you could see it, you'd agree. It's an absolute no-brainer. I suffer this, but I get all that. All of those are the riches of my glorious inheritance as a faithful child of God. We can't see it. It's unseen. But that's where we have to fix our eyes. Trusting the Lord for the eternal glory that is to come. That far outweighs whatever we suffer in this life for his sake. The suffering we see and feel is real. The eternal glory infinitely more so. The suffering is temporary. The glory is eternal. The apostles saw it. They got a glimpse in Acts 5. That's why just as Jesus said, they left the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace, just like the master himself. They may even have leapt for joy because it wasn't just suffering. And it wasn't suffering because they'd been a bit obnoxious. It was suffering for the name. It was suffering because of him, as Jesus said in Luke 6. And Jesus had told them. And Peter remembered what the eternal result of that would be. And the Spirit confirmed it to their hearts as they stumbled home. And they couldn't help it. They weren't trying to be spiritual. They were just full of joy. Now you can say to me, what do you know of persecution? of suffering. What right have you got to talk? What do you understand about it? You know nothing. And as far as my experience goes, you'd be dead right. I know nothing. But I do know the truth of Scripture. And my prayer is simply, Lord, I choose to follow you. Help me to be faithful today. And when I come to the time of testing, help me to be faithful in your strength at that time. But I choose to follow you whatever may come because you are worth it all. You see, Jim Elliot, who himself lost his life for the gospel, famously spoke the truth when he said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He didn't know then he was going to die for Christ, but he was ready for it because he'd seen the truth. You give the one to gain the other. There is a causal link between what we suffer and what we inherit. We share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Our light and momentary troubles, they're what are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. There's purpose in it. There's cause and effect. These trials in which you've had to suffer grief, 1 Peter 1, they have come so that your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise, honor, and glory when Christ is revealed. You go through the one to gain the other. It's the ultimate no pain, no gain. Like Jim Elliot, let's not be fools. Let's fix our eyes on what is eternal. See, there is no other gospel but this one. 
There is no other life so worth living and no other prize so worth dying for if that is what it costs. Jesus said to the church in Smyrna, Revelation 2.10, Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death. And I will give you the victor's crown of life. James 1. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we pray that you will open the eyes of our hearts to see and to know your truth. Father, we pray that we will not be fools. Give us the eyes of faith to see clearly so that we might choose wisely. And if this is your prayer, then join with me now. Lord, we choose today to be faithful to you, whatever the cost, wherever the road leads, not knowing what lies ahead, that's not what matters. Lord, what matters is just that we would be faithful. All we ask is that you would help us in whatever ways we might need so that as we share in your sufferings, we might also one day share in your glory. Father, for the reward that lies ahead and for the sake of the name of Jesus, we pray, Lord, just keep us faithful to the end. Thank you for listening. For further podcasts or information, go to www.kca.church.